Hey everyone, Caitlin here. I have Paul Flynn with me on this episode who uh, was a former Marine um, or Army something or other (laughs) through the United Kingdom. And uh, I just wanted to give a quick trigger warning about this episode as there are two separate points where he goes into a bit of a detail about some of the traumatic events that he witnessed. So specific time frames are between about eight minutes and nine minutes in um, and between about 15 and a half to 16 and a half minutes in. If you want to skip over this episode entirely, if you think it would be triggering um, or just skip over that sections, do whatever feels comfortable for you. And thank you all for listening. Open up the dialogue, we about to clear this mental fog Raising a society that only wants the epilogue There's so much in the middle, how do we deal with emotions? Even when it feels like we're drowning in an ocean We spool each other rotten, our owners are forgotten All aboard the train of anxious thoughts is not stopping We all have memories, they may feel like enemies We wouldn't be even without a struggle with identity Suppression is expected, depression is rejected Within my own mind I find it hard to be accepted Screw this just world, gotta find my own meaning It ain't too appealing, have these fights with our feelings everyone, welcome back to The Fight With Our Feelings, a podcast where me, Caitlin Baldwin, a registered psychotherapist, talks about mental health and feelings and grittiness and all the crunchy bits of being human. And I have my Peru travel mate extraordinaire, Paul Flynn, with me. So, Paul, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? You okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm great. I'm very glad that you're on here that you're willing to do this and um i'm excited to try and pull out some things about mental health from you because uh you've you've made it you've made it quite clear to me that like you don't really seem to struggle with it in any sense which is always like wild to me because i'm on the complete opposite end of that so okay okay i mean i don't i can't say i can i don't 100 percent but i mean there's been times of difficulty but yeah come on yeah so um, I don't know if if right away we want to get into your history. Part of why I wanted to ask you to come on here is because you talked to me about like your time in the forces. And so I don't know if you want to give a bit of background around around what that looked like or what your trajectory in that was. Yeah. So where do you want me to start? Do you want to go into a little bit of history? or? Yeah. By all, yes, educate uh- me because I know nothing about it. Um, I mean, I suppose I was always destined to join the military. I was that kid who ran around with a stick in the woods and bloody bought camo gear and fucking played with GI and action men. And, yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, my dad was in the Navy and all my cousins were being in the, the Army and stuff like that. And then um, I actually signed up to join the Navy when I was 16 to be a clearance driver. Whoa, I didn't know that you could that early. Well, this, this is why I never joined. This is why I never went the full hog. So I did all the tests and everything, and I passed like to get into the Navy. But because I was 16, they were like, oh, you're too young to be a diver. You've got to be a minimum of 18. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> they were like, well, I'll tell you what, join, pick up a trade, I, like, you know, an engineer, whatever. And um, they said, when you're 18, then we'll, we'll transfer you onto your course and you become a clearance diver. And um, like I said, all my cousins were in the military, and they were like, mate, that's, not, that's never going to happen. He said, you're going to join. They said, they'll get you onto a trade. They'll promote you. And then he said, once you promote you, you're fucked. He said, you won't be getting out like of Like, they trade. won't ever let you. Oh, okay. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't think it was the right time anyway. I mean, I was a bad pothead, but I used to just smoke loads of weed. And... Yeah, fair enough. 
No, I mean listen to Pink Floyd around my mate's house. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sorry, do you mean like from like from a physical fitness po- point of view, or like what what about that would have made it bad to be a diver? Well, I mean it's the Navy for starters, so there's not much physical needed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's the case in the UK anyway. But um, no, oh, yeah. pa- I mean Paul, if you can't tell, is from Ireland. Sorry, that's, a joke. that's a joke. Um, <laughs> Oh, from um, England. So, uh, yeah, what was I saying? No, I was I was always pretty fit. I mean, I started going to the gym quite early with my mates and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so always had a relative, like, half-decent fitness. But, um, yeah, I just don't think it was the time for me. I mean, I, I went through, I think when I left school, I went through my little drug stage. I was like a massive fucking pothead and stuff like that. And yeah. experimenting with drugs and stuff. Um, and then I got to about, how old was I? I was doing an apprenticeship being a, an electrician. So I think it was about 21, 22. And I think Iraq had just kicked off. So when you first went into Iraq, you know, all the WND stuff and with Saddam yeah. and all stuff. And I remember there used to be a TV program as well in the UK called, um, it's actually just really, well, it restarted again a few years ago, but the original one was called like SAS, Are You Tough Enough? And I remember I used to watch that. Some bloke called Eddie Stone used to present it. I remember watching that thinking, oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. Was it just like a, a fitness toughness competition? Well, okay. it was basically like you would basically go on like a two-week TV program to basically go through like certain very, very shortened versions of UK, UK Special Forces selection. Yeah. Uh, nothing like the real thing. But yeah, I remember for just, sure. That's fucking awesome. That's awesome. So... Um, my mind started ticking at this point. And then I remember it was when 40 Commando and they were rolling into Iraq. And I remember sitting there watching it on the TV. And I was there with my best mate. Me and my best mate actually joined up together. And I remember watching it. I was like, I want to do that. Yeah. I was like, fucking me. That's me. And I knew quite a few. There was a couple of lads who were older than me from school and they joined the Marines and stuff like that. And when we used to go out into town and see them having a beer and stuff, they were like, you fucking joined the Marines and fucking like, do you know what I mean? So, uh, so yeah, I think I joined the Marines when I was like 23. Passed out when I was 24, pretty much. Went straight to Afghanistan. So, yeah, like we did a few months in Norway first and then came back and started training and then went out to Afghan, which was like a massive eye opener because that's when it went crazy. Yeah, for sure. And you were there for how long? Like, was it multiple stints or were you there consistently? Because I got drafted. I got drafted while I was out there. Yeah. Uh, shy of six months out in Afghan on my first tour, um, which was weird because a lot of it was, I thought it'd be dead intense and it wasn't. It was quite for the first three months of our tour, it was boring. We were just kind of like a supplementary. Um, like like you their first support, yeah, for the yeah. others. Kind of like the four two commander with the lead unit so they went there and got all the good jobs and they weren't really giving any to four or five i was in so there's like three different units in the in the royal marines there's 40 commandos four two commandos four or five commando i was in four and um yeah so the first three months were a bit boring and then we got stuck into sangin i mean i don't know if you've heard of sangin i i literally so just for reference i didn't even know where peru was when we signed up for that trip so no i have no idea where that is <laughs> well, sangin was quite a um 
a hive of activity, should we say. It was a hotbed of activity. Okay, okay. yeah. Going out on patrol and just constantly getting into contacts and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, constantly getting attacked as well. So our base was literally just outside of Sangin, DC. It was called Fobrob. And um, we had an element of 4-2 Commando who were in the district centre, and we basically support them through, like, through the guns, basically. So we'd fire onto them if they ever needed our support, but we'd also patrol our AO, like our area of occupation, and yeah. then dip our, dip, dip our toes in the water, should we say, round into the DC when they won't be doing stuff. Um, so we just did that. But, yeah, so it all kind of, like, changed about three months in and went all a bit mental. One of my mates got killed. Um, that wasn't very nice. Um, so, yeah, a couple of lads got blown up. One of the lads got blown up twice, actually. Both times got blown up by a tank by, a, by an anti-tank man, blew the engine up, bust all his nose and stuff like this. But, yeah, the worst thing that was happened happened to Dutchy. One of my mates, he got killed out there, which was pretty shitty. Um so then, yeah, and then I got drafted, went to a place called Faz Lane, where we look after all the nuclear submarines, um, which was, I hated, absolutely hated it. Didn't stay that long in there, though, so I was like, I'm not sticking here, I'm getting out of this place. Uh, and then I joined- hated it for, for what reason? Like, because it was just a sep- like separate from the oh, action, or? Not soldiering, it's not soldiering. You're basically, yeah. you're-, oh, you're a glorified security guard. Because yeah, all you exactly. do, just providing security so it's in a naval base you're just providing security for the, 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 the nuclear submarines basically yeah it's just i mean like so what <laughs> the biggest issue we used to have was greenpeace okay greenpeace would constantly kind of get in and stuff like this yeah or the you used to have this thing down the road uh called 365 faz lane yeah which was a lot of who lived in like buses and stuff and it was on like this big plot of land over by this real rich woman who was a bit bonkers and they used to come down and like do demonstrations it'd always be on Friday afternoon as well so you'd be leaving camp trying to get home and then they'd, put, they'd lock the camp down. and they're like nope no chance protesters we used to fucking off yeah. them. we hated them but we never actually came into like contact with them because it was all like the military yeah. police so yeah I did stick around there for much longer I was like so the there was like this new unit that got developed called Special Forces Support Group, which was it's like one para. So I don't know, it was like the Parachute Regiment, which is an army regiment. Um, a very, very small element of the Royal Air Force. And um, like, a, not, uh, like a squadron of Marines as well. <clears throat> so I went on like a selection course for that, passed it, joined them, and went down to one para for like three years in the south coast of Wales and absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. That was brilliant. Did quite a few tours of them, did tours out in Iraq and stuff like that. Because um, we were working directly with the SAS then, so we were like, do you know what's, the SBS? What's SAS? The SAS? Service. Oh, okay. And the Special Boat Service. So we were working directly with them in support of them. So we got to do all the good jobs, got all the good kit. We are going out, just doing everything. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. When I was out in America, sorry, when I was out in Iraq as well, I got attached to the. So you heard of the U.S. Army Rangers? Uh, yeah. They're basically. I don't like, know anything about them, but. So they're like the American version of, um, like basically what I was doing. Okay. 
and yeah, it was brilliant. Got attached to them for a month out in a wreck, going out door kicking with them, fucking <laughs> getting into all sorts of shit. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Great, great bunch of lads. Um, yeah, and then left there, and then I went back to Faz Lane again, which I hated. I was like, oh god. Uh, ended up going back to Faz Lane. I was like, right, I want to get out of this. And then I went on selection to join Special Forces, and I joined a unit called the Special Reconnaissance Regiment which is kind of like, so we've got three special forces regiments in the UK. We've got the um, special conscience regiments, special air service and special boat service. So like the special air service and special boat service are like the, the aggressors, the, the fixers. So we do, do think of it like, we do like find, fix and strike. Okay. okay. So they're like the strike element. So SS and the SBS, they're the strike element who go in and like do whatever. We were like the intelligence gathering side. Yeah. So we build up a lot of reconnaissance and stuff like that, using like technical kit. Yeah. Lots of it. I remember you talking like really briefly about that when we were on our trip because you were like, I don't know, someone, I don't know if it was you or someone else that had brought up like Big Brother and how you're like, like no one's actually watching you. Like no one cares about what you're doing on Facebook. Totally true. I mean, I'm not going to go into detail here. You know yeah, I mean? no, 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 I know. I went to a certain place in a certain country and met the intelligence. And for a whole province in this country, which was a couple of million people, he had like a handful of people, should we say. Yeah. We're, only li- we're only listening to you if you are up to no good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like anyone on the street that they're like, we got to watch out for this person. I mean, I don't know about America, but, you know, you may have like these. I think the fact that people think if you say like certain words like bomb, blah, blah, blah. Do you know what I mean? That, that if you say these certain words in America. Yeah, it's going to like trigger this whole system. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to get walked. <laughs> like, the infrastructure to do that is massive. It is yeah. enormous. Not also the cost and then the manpower that would go into that. Yeah, for sure. Like, if people are not going to follow you and watch you and listen to you unless you're up to bad shit. Yeah. So just don't yeah. Well, okay. And so what's, what's wild to me about this is like when we were on our first end of the trip and like we all, you know, got together for dinner and um, I don't know if I brought it up or someone else did, but you'd said that like, you've never been to therapy and that's, wild to me and I'm biased obviously because I'm a therapist but like it's it's crazy to think that you would be exposed to as much as you were and it didn't have like a jarring impact on you like maybe that's just me being really uneducated and or having this like very off bias or stereotype about what the army does but like the way you're describing it, like you're encountering a bunch of shit, like you're, you're encountering aggression and threats on a regular basis, depending on what, you know, what position you were in, but like, how did you deal with that? How did you deal with that without coming out like traumatized? Well, so I've seen a lot of shit. Okay. I've seen Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff, seen a lot of stuff. And so like when, when I mentioned before that my mate got killed, we was back for his funeral too, and there was another guy there. Uh, I'm not going to mention his name, but he mm-hmm. actually set up a very, very, very big charity in the UK now. And I remember I was sat next to him at the funeral, and he was crying his eyes out. 
Now he was the sniper. He was what like one of the snipers for our company. Yeah. Uh, he felt overwhelming guilt that he didn't spot what happened. So basically, my mate Dutchy walked. He was clearing a compound. As he walked into the compound, there was a landmine set underneath. So it was basically a personnel mine set on top of a anti-tank mine. So basically, because then you, you can step on an anti-tank mine, and you know it's quite hard to set off with just right. like over. Yeah. Vehicles. So that's why they had the anti-personnel mine. So when he stood on that, it basically split him in half. There was no way that my mate could have seen that. It was buried under the floor. There was yeah. no way. But unfortunately, he caught it up, ripped him into it, and he died. Now I was sat next to him, and he was crying his eyes out. And I remember sitting there, and I felt really, I felt this like wave of guilt come over me because I wasn't crying. Yeah. Fucks up with me. But anyway, I found out like a few years later, it was actually from a girl that I knew in when I was special forces who actually met him in Northern Ireland. She came, he came out to Northern Ireland to see one of the blokes that I knew in my company. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Um, and she was telling it was only once she was telling me, she was like, oh, yeah, I was with such and such. And she's like, you know him. And we went to a gig and she was like, did you know that he's basically locked himself in a house for the last two years? And attempted suit, and I was like, "No." That sorry, that was this guy that that felt so like guilt ridden yeah. afterwards. Okay, yeah, yes, and I, I, I mean, you've got to understand the background that I've come from. Okay, so like you know, very stiff upper lip, typical British. You know, we don't really talk about our feelings. Blah blah blah. Time <laughs> is not the right way to do it. Okay. Yeah. No, I know. Uh, I know that very well from my family. So. When I was, so when about 2009, yeah, about 2010, I remember sitting in a brief and I'd already done two tours by this point. Okay, I'd done a tour of Iraq, I'd done a tour of Afghanistan and it was a naval guy, come down to One Para to meet us because we were going out and he was giving us one of the first ever mental health briefs. Okay. The idea of the military... Like, it's just... It makes me cringe so much. That... Oh, yeah. It's absolutely bonkers. It's absolutely <sighs> bonkers. So, they're right. So, when I went... On our first tour, when we got back, what we did was we fly to Akateri, which is in Cyprus, basically. It's like a big military camp, a big um, RAF okay. camp. In... You'd stop in Akateri. You get thrown into basically like a big hall. Okay. You'd have some guy a brief for five minutes off his laptop ping his laptop or about like here is what anxiety is yeah don't go home you misses blah 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 don't go kicking the crap out of civvies blah 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 and then the next minute you chuck in about fucking 100 crates of beer you get absolutely upside down you're probably unshowered yet either for about yeah. three days literally just come straight out the desert stop there come straight into the hall at a barbecue, and then you get pissed, kick the crap out of each other. Everyone fucking clears all because everyone's, you know, you've been stuck together on a little tiny camp, like yeah. within your small little room. Everyone's going to build up little like angers with people. Yeah, like even, even just physically, like the the amount of of like pressure and energy that builds up in your body when you're in a situation like that. It's like a pressure cooker that's gonna yeah. fucking oh, yeah. blow. Yeah. My- so, um, so yeah, just kick a load of crates in. You get absolutely shit-faced. Kick the crap out of each other. And then fly home a couple of days later. And do you know what, though? I mean, 
I never really believed in mental health. I think I said, I think I mentioned that to you, didn't I? Yeah, Until you I, did. You did, yeah. I actually experienced part of it for myself. But um Oh god, I can't remember what point I'm going with it. So yeah, I never really believed in it until I saw it. And I remember like I remember being back at a different unit when I was back at Faz Lane. I'd already done a couple of tours. I remember one of the lads coming in, he was like, guys, I'm really, really struggling. And we were like, what do you mean? And he basically just got like a small little nip of us into the office and he was like, look, I've got, he goes, I think I've got PTSD. He goes, but I've gone, I'm gonna go. He goes, I've spoke to someone. He goes, I'm gonna go and like do it. He goes, but I'm really, really struggling at the moment. I, I've yeah. got, I, I didn't have a fucking clue. I was like, because like, I didn't was, have a clue what it was. So what do you mean? I knew what it was. Obviously, from these briefs, like stress disorder. Oh, but okay, like, but didn't didn't realize that like he was going through I, that. I was remember sitting there thinking, fucking hell, mate. I mean, I was like, but the thing is, I knew he was one of them strong blokes. Yeah, he's not one of them guys who would like. You thought, nah, he's weak. Him. He was one of them guys who was like really, really good soldier, mega, mega fit, just, just a fucking really, really good bloke, really, really good bloke. And he was like, yeah, I'm really struggling, really, really struggling. And I was always like, I've seen all this stuff that these people have seen. Why has it never bothered me? And I know. So when I when I used to come back off tour, um, I, I I'd usually cry for about six months. So I'd go out on the piss, i get absolute shit face with my ex-wife, she was my wife at the time, get, go out with my mates, get absolutely shit face. I'd always end up in tears by the end of the night, always yeah. end up crying. I always felt really, really guilty that I was back home. Yeah. Got out in Afghanistan, and my wife would always be like, she was like, oh, you were talking last night again. I was like, oh, shit, what was I saying? She was like, oh, I don't know, just fucking crazy stuff. So I'd like talk in my sleep. So I'd, yeah. I'd have like... I'd cry my eyes out for like six months when I was drinking and I would fucking talk in my sleep. But day to day, I felt absolutely fine. It was all like subconsciously. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, like, you know, so you you mentioned before that you grew up like very, very strict British family, like no emotional expression. And sometimes in that, like we can learn, we, we just like have these very good kind of repression mechanisms that like don't let anything come to the surface and then it will come out when our um when our inhibitions are lowered when we're sleeping when we're you know like really spaced out because it only comes <laughs> up from that like unconscious place yeah yeah true very very true yeah um like sits in the back of your mind i think yeah Way and then every now and then it just rears its little ugly head. Well, yeah, and that's the biggest thing. Like, so when you said that, it was really hard because uh, on on the trip and everywhere else, like I try not to have my therapist self on. (laughs) Like, I don't want to walk around analyzing people. Sorry. Did it go into overdrive when you met me? Then it wasn't in overdrive, but it was like it was this little like, huh, huh. Because it's just, you know, like one of the biggest things that I focus on is, is avoidance. So the way that we like either distract ourselves from or push ourselves away from any distressing feelings or thoughts or memories or whatever. And so, you know, for me, like, I love it when some, when I like get a new client and they're like, no, I'm like, everything's good and cool and great. And I'm like, hmm, (laughs) okay. Like, what can I pull out here and not because I want to pull it out to like torture someone but because we can just get so good at shutting stuff 
down and like not accessing it on our day to day. Yeah, very true. Very true. I mean, I think, I think where things started to unravel for me is um, when I went to special forces towards the end of my career. Yeah. So I, twelve years in total, and um, when I was I was out on tour, and it was a year long tour. This one, so it was quite heavy. It was intense as well. It was intense, and in the world that we were, I was living in then, it was very work hard, play hard. And I didn't realise the person I was becoming. I didn't realise at the time. I became a prick. I became a prick. Like in in what way? How did you change? Not, not a good person. I just wasn't a good person. I was shitty to my wife. And I'll tell you a couple of things. I was shitty. And, and, and to be fair, you know, I think that was a massive part of why I'm ended up divorced now. I mean, like, divorce rate in special forces anyway is huge. It's something ridiculous, like 70, 80%. Yeah, divorce. I can imagine, like, just, uh, you know, even beyond, like, the stress that it puts on the relationship, just the impacts that it has on on you, like, the individual that's gone, like, you're you change into a different person yeah so towards the end of it my wife turned my husband she's like i don't feel like i've got a husband yeah and i said like you know i got it i got it and i mean it was very very it was work hard play hard and so we would think nothing like we'd go out to like two three four o'clock in the morning have a deep come back and like my my boss would be sat there and it'd be like two crates of beer a couple of bottles of wine and a bottle of whiskey and we'd sit there drinking because if you did if you worked through the night you wouldn't have to work till the next day till like two three o'clock in the afternoon yeah. so we would jump all the way till breakfast go to breakfast pissed and then get our heads down for like five hours and then we'd be going back into another brief at like two three o'clock in the afternoon to go out in the afternoon yeah it's it's part of the cult like so i've never i haven't been in the army but like it's such a ingrained part of the culture and that's true for like a bunch of different professions where it's just like yeah it's completely normal that as soon as you finish work or even before then like you just start drinking and and there's nothing questioned about it at all no i mean one, one of the times that always in my mind and i think this is where it was like the alarm bells went off in my head is so like every month we would like different elements of uh the squadron I was in at the time would organise a monthly party okay. in the bar. And I was flying home the next day because it was my son's birthday. And I was in the bar drinking till about six in the morning. I fell asleep in the bar. We used to take our suitcases into the bar with us if we were flying the next day. Which, for granted, we used to live next door to the airport, so it was only yeah. a 10 minute. Um, we'd take our suitcases into the, into the bar and it'd be the last man standing. And I was asleep in the bar, glass smashed everywhere, do you know what I mean? Covered in shit. I remember one of the lads like pretty much like kicked me in the head. It was like, fucking Flinny, wake up. Come on, mate. Yeah. Gotta get the flight. He was like, should have gone to bed hours ago. Flew home, fell asleep on the train. My mum was supposed to pick me up at the train station, flew straight through. <laughs> so I didn't even get off at the right train station. Like turned up late. Yeah. And had a sh- thinking of alcohol and dirty clothes and everything and my ex-wife just looked at me and she was like you ever ever turn up to our house like that again she was like it's over yeah. and I was like she's well within her right yeah. that's what I mean this is how I was coming and I started to recognize it but I don't think I, I think I got out at the right time because it's only since leaving that I mean, I've seen people that I've worked with and I've actually apologised to them for the way I was because I was 
mate, I was a fucking dick to you when I was in there. I know I was. I know I was. I know I was a fucking dick to such and such people and such and such people. And I have apologised to them. And one of my mates even turned around to me and was like, mate, it's very admirable the fact that you noticed that. And I said, but I didn't notice it at the time. I said, yeah. it was only after I left and I actually like processed the thought. Yeah. And, you know, and then it was like, right. But I think that's where my life became a little bit of a car crash because that's where my... Do you know what I mean? My marriage just spiraled out of control and everything. And I went away to Africa and I was working out in Africa for a year because I got offered like stupid money to work out there teaching, yeah. like teaching the military. And that's where my divorce, that's why that's where my, my marriage ended and everything. And I think that that was like the bomb for me. Like yeah. My marriage, that's where my head exploded. Yeah. Well, it's, it's... Building and building and building and building. Yeah. And it, it took divorce to fucking explode my head, and that's when I went through a real bad patch. It's it's tough. So it was weird. I was um I was with my uncle this morning, and we were talking about something similar about like the the shittiness of the fact that sometimes it's like these really awful events and changes and transitions that that kind of kickstart you into looking at yourself differently and actually being aware of certain things. And it sucks that it has to come through that, like that it has to kind of be a divorce. It has to be, you know, a, a breakup or whatever else it is to force us to do it. But it, and I'm not one to ever look at silver linings. Like I hate when people are like, oh, but look at the bright side. And <laughs> there is kind of a bright side to situations like that where you're like, you, you come out better from it, even though it came from something shitty. Yeah, potentially. I, think, I mean, maybe that's not fair to say for, for your experience, but... I think it's true in what they say, that what doesn't kill you makes you... I think that definitely applies. Yeah. I think once you become aware of it as well, that you do struggle with things, that... It, it, it's, I think once... I think mental health happens to everyone. I think there's different degrees of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You've, got, you've got blues, haven't you? Where someone's being on the session, being on the piss at the weekend. And a little bit low and then you've got the other extreme where there's people who've got like serious conditions mm-hmm. you know i probably think i'm more towards the left side where yeah you know, yeah like there there is a spectrum for sure of like we can all experience any type of emotion but there's a huge difference between being sad and experiencing clinical depression or being anxious and experiencing like psychosis and delusions that's they're very different things because that was so when you said before that I haven't ever, I've not spoken to a psychiatrist as per se, but I have spoke to someone, okay? Because I was, I've, I've really, really looked back at this and never ever thought I had an issue with my anger. Never ever thought. And I've tried to look back at times, even back in the military where I would like fly off in like fits of rage. Yeah. And I spoke to someone, she said to me that this is what my anxiety is. She said, so basically when I got divorced, I just couldn't control my anger. I couldn't control it. And the thoughts in my head would just get that point to the point where I would shake. And I could not control myself, not in a violent manner. I was never violent towards anybody, but I was very, very verbally violent. Yeah, for sure. Like it was just coming out as explosions. Out a ball, I'd be in fucking fits of rage. Yeah. Across that line where I hurt anybody. But I mean, God, I mean, what's to say that that couldn't that couldn't have happened if I did get pushed that little bit one too far. Yeah, you know it was only after speaking to someone that I 
I actually became aware that, you know, she, she was like, she's like, this is what your anxiety is, that you lose control and your anger kicks in. And when your anger can, kicks in, because I just can't get that thought out of my head and that yeah. thought will play and play and play until it winds me up and winds me up. Yeah. And I have learned to deal with it now. And I am a lot calmer person. I basically just have to walk away and cut it all off and walk away from it. This is, I think since leaving the military, I've become a massive pacifist because especially after Afghanistan got handed back and I thought, oh God, it was just a waste of life. But it's, oh, I don't know how to explain this. Well, yeah, I don't know how to explain this, sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, like, so anger is, for me, it's one of my favorite things to work with because like anger likes to get, or likes to be, you know, demonized in a way. Like everyone has a lot of judgments about when people are angry and like can't control it, but it often comes up as a protection. And like most of the time it's a protection of, you know, fear. So in the same way that like, yeah, there was this anxiety coming up that you couldn't control. And so what steps in instead is anger because at least we feel powerful and in control when we're angry, when we're anxious and fearful, we're like, we feel helpless and we don't know what to do. Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I just, it was horrible to be honest. I've not, I've not experienced anything like that for a long time. Yeah. Um, like I say, I've got certain ways I can deal with it, but I just have to cut it out of my life and just fucking walk away from it. Yeah. Like, okay. So can I, can I ask about that? A bit? Yeah, yeah. So I ask him How? So I, I get what you mean that like, yeah, you'll in that situation, if you can feel that anger rising for you, you'll you'll step away from it. But <laughs> this might seem like a dumb question, but like, how do you actually do that? Because sometimes the there's a disconnect between knowing like, okay, I should walk away here, or that would prevent, you know, this from escalating further. But you might I mean, already be in a place where it feels out of control. Like, how do you, how do you actually do that for yourself? So for me, it's exercise. Okay. Okay. I often refer. So you like, I live in a small town. I'll go for a run down the beach and stuff like this, and I'll get yeah. people, you know, like, "Mate, I saw you out for a run the other day." They're like, "What the fuck are you doing? Running at forty years of age?" And I'm like, "Mate, I have to do it. Mate, it stops my head from falling off. That's yeah. always my stops my head from falling off." Yeah. So when I'm when I have struggled in the past, yeah, for sure. When there's all that like pressure there, yeah. So when I was going through my divorce, I went through a really, really bad dark patch. Okay, and I was like, I just moved into a house, and I was earning good money because I'd been out in Africa and stuff like this, and I was earning like sh- honestly, I was earning stupid money. I just started buying like bags of cocaine, fucking shoving it on my nose. I think nothing of fucking drinking half a bottle of whiskey and a couple of bags of coke, sat in on my own on a fucking Wednesday night. Yeah. And it got that bad to the point where I drove up to the beach shit-faced, which I shouldn't have done. I was genuinely yeah, Kids, don't drink and drive, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is not, this is, yeah, this is a PSA for drinking and driving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely thought about taking my own life at that point. Yeah. And I knew I had to do something about it. That's because I've got kids. So I was like, I knew I'd never have done it. Yeah. I mean, I fucking, I don't think I've got the bollocks to fucking go through with it. And I knew I never would because I would never, ever, ever put my children through that. I knew yeah. a couple of lads who killed themselves and stuff like that. And the, 
the backlash from it is just the, yeah up. the aftermath is is horrendous exactly and i just I, I knew i could never do that to my kids but i was seriously seriously fairly just wanted to go i yeah. just thought world would be a better place around me that's all i think so i fucking jipped the coke on the head and i cocaine to this day it's the fucking I mean I'm a big believer in psychedelics I think psychedelics can play a massive part mm-hmm. in curing mental health not yeah. that I'm advocating that kind of stuff but no I mean you know, I, I kind of am like <laughs> I've, a per, I've had personal experiences where I've taken psychedelics and it's gone a lot for me and yeah. I know other people and we've even had this conversation before haven't we yeah, yeah it, it, it does something you know in there's almost like two extremes of it. So things like um, things like alcohol and cocaine kind of largely help us avoid those inner experiences, right? So they they kind of numb us or they distract us from anything internally and we're only focused on the, the feeling of being drunk or high, but psychedelics so, on the flip side open us up to what's going on internally. I actually disagree a little bit with the coach. I think with, well, with me personally, yeah. Cope emphasize the bad feelings and the I, I get horrendous okay. Yeah. When, like you had a couple of lines or whatever, and you're in bed or something, your mind just starts racing and all they can think about it, like how shit you are, yeah. how fucking like it's horrible. Well and, and so I say like I say that it helps it helps distract, but it's only to a point because like the same thing can be said, and I don't know if this is your experience, but like same thing can be said about alcohol. So like, I don't know if, I don't know if I told you this, but my first couple of years as a therapist was in, um, addiction counseling. And so <laughs> like, yeah, so I, I worked at a, at an agency and, um, for about two and a half years and like alcohol was the number one thing that came in. Like I had, you know, I had a stupid amount of clients at a time. I had like 80 clients at a time, which was terrible. Um, but alcohol would be like 70% of them not to reduce people to to what they were using but anyways like alcohol had that effect where it could it could kind of pull you away from the sadness from the depression from the anxiety for however long but then the further you'd be into it the more depressing it would become yeah yeah it's, yeah. A, it's a nasty spiral. yeah it's a nasty little circle to get into it's I think it's the destroyer of all character cocaine. I really do. It just destroys your character and turns you into somebody that you're not. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not going to, I can't sit here and act all fucking smog and say, well, I've never touched it ever since because I have, because a lot of my mates do it. It's a very, mm-hmm. very popular, sociable drug. Every now and then, my guy, um, but on, on a whole, I'd pretty much stay off it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I mean, that's the thing too. Like, it's not like anything has to be demonized. Like, there's, there's a part of me that, that, you know, wants to believe that in some sense, like heroin could be okay. I don't know if I fully believe that, <laughs> but but there is a part of me that wants to be able to say that because like the problem isn't mm. isn't anything isn't any like substance inherently. It's the fact of like how we use it and how we then like rely on it and depend on it to, you know, help us survive. When in reality, it it makes us a lot worse when we're overusing it yeah totally so. not that totally. i do heroin that kind of makes <laughs> i do not use I, heroin i've never had it either so i can't yeah. <laughs> okay. 
but can I can I actually ask about like so you said that that's that's not something that has like a big role in your life anymore how did you what was the process of like pulling that back out of your life after this really low period during or after the divorce you know do you know what it's, it's such it is such a cliche but it once again it was exercise I like it cliches are awesome I like I do not fault cliches that works they're all they're a cliche for a reason exactly so. yeah uh, but yeah, it was exercise for me. Exercise has always been the one. I stopped, yeah. so I beat myself out of it. I pulled myself out of it, and not completely though, not completely. So I pulled myself out of it. I stopped drinking, stopped doing coke, uh, hit the gym, got in the best shape I've ever been in, um, and yeah, kind of like pulled myself out of that. But I still had the demons at the back of my head. I still yeah. had the. That's what. I never knew that I had this anxiety or I never knew that, you know, I had these problems with my anger. And then I met this girl and she was like the first like serious girlfriend. And to be fair, she was a little, she had her own issues. Okay? She had, she's yeah. really, really, anxiety, really, really suffered with anxiety. And to be quite honest, it was a bit of a toxic relationship. And I think that fueled my anger. And she used to say to me, you need to go and see all about your anger issues you need to go and see someone i was with this girl for about a year and a half and um yeah i was crazy about her as well absolutely crazy about her um and, and to be honest i still think about her now do you know what i mean i still do think about me? her <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it... the way you know trying to like oh yeah let's go rekindle let's get back with her it's not i just you know no, every now I get and then that. i'll be like oh, i wonder how she's doing i wonder how she's doing uh, yeah, which which all that really speaks to is like the 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 connection or the fondness that you have, right? Like I have, you know, multiple serious relationships in my past that I do not want <laughs> any part of again, but like there's they still have a place in in my mind and you know, in whatever and, and I wish the best for them because you you care about the person. You can't stop that from happening. Yeah, completely, completely. I mean, it was it was a toxic relationship, but you know, yeah. Even, even once it all broke up, that was that was the point where I was like, because she was like, "You need to speak to someone. You really, really, you you should really." She was like, "Your head's fucked up from the military." She was like, "You are fucked in the head, and you need to speak to somebody because if you if you go into another relationship, the same thing's going to happen." And when I lost her, um. That was the point where I thought maybe I do need to speak to someone, and I did. And to be great, it was only short period, and I was very reluctant to do it. Like I said, do you know what I mean? It was like I didn't really. Okay. Only once speaking to this person that I actually became aware of like more about mental health and more like yeah, I was suffering it, and this is you know, this is the mental health like I was going through, and you know, she gave me like a lot of tactics basically how to deal with things and she was like look she's like you've got this now she goes you'll never ever get rid of it and i do that you know i can't lie every now and then it does spring up you know but yeah because i just got this way now where i cope and like i say where i have to walk away i just have to ignore it and walk away yeah and so part of me kicking me inside going, fucking react to it sending that message for what well, just you know what i mean or whatever and i just yeah. i won't arm because i know once i do It'll explode. It'll just spiral out of control, which it is hard to do. It is very, very hard to do. Yeah, like it, it takes getting... a lot of it takes a lot of restraint. And I mean, like I'm 
for me, like I'm in this challenge now where <laughs> I, I do, I do so much work with myself, like the same type of work that I do with my clients where like, I'm trying to really like validate every part of me that comes up. So when I have, I'll have this, like, I'm trying to think of a, of an example that I'm comfortable sharing there. So there might be a part of me that comes up that's like very insecure about something. So if, um, if I have like some kind of insecure thought or worry in my relationship now, then this angry part will swoop in and be like, fuck him, you know, end the relationship, like send this whatever text. And so the work that I'm trying to do now is like, is, is validating the fact that both of them are there. Like, so I, I quite literally acknowledge them as if they're like people coming up in my body and I'm like, Hey, how you doing? I can see that you're mad, but then, (laughs) but at the same time, like the point of it is to try and be able to like act from yourself rather than these like angry or anxious impulses that come up. But it, it's so challenging when like, I want to, I want to let that come through sometimes. And like, I don't know, for, for me, like with women, anger is just like extra judged. Cause as soon as you show anger as a woman, you're labeled as like a bossy bitch. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever, aren't you? I mean. Yeah. Yeah. But. I um, it's starting to turn. Men, men, men are getting a bit of a shit time in the moment. But to be fair, I think we, I think we deserve our time. I think it's about time. Rap. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but I mean, like it, it is anger is just one of those things that's consistently judged so much. Like even, I don't work with a lot of younger clients, but I do have some teens um, and, or like parents will reach out to me to try and see if I'll, if I'll work with their teen client and they'll, they'll send in these initial contacts of like, you know, my son is is 13 and you know he's so angry and he's off the rails and whatever and I'm like like do you understand what's happening (laughs) like like it's there's there's external stuff that causes that anger you know it's it's one where it's like kids are just told like ah stop being angry stop having a tantrum but it's like okay there's more to it than that like we can't just shut those emotions off completely yeah, something very similar has just happened at my boys' school where another kid um, is just, I'm not sure if he's been expelled or he's been suspended, but he whacked the teacher with a stick. He apparently turned around to one of the girls in his class and went, I'm going to whack the teacher. And then apparently he went off and there was a scream and he actually attacked the teacher with a stick. My son was like, oh, yeah, he's off his head, Dad. And I was like, mate, there's something going on. Yeah. And also that. I said, yeah. Don't just do that for no reason. I said, that's a cry for attention. Something's going on, mate. For sure. Like, and especially we, we pick up, yeah, we pick up the things that we see. So it doesn't always come down to parents. Like sometimes I feel like I'm really bashing parents, but I'm not. No, don't you? Because I, I instantly thought something's going on at home. For sure. Yeah. Because, because where else are you seeing that? Right. Like it, it can kind of go one of a few ways, but like two very common routes are that you might grow up in a household where emotions are just not talked about whatsoever. So if someone's upset, if someone's angry, if someone's frustrated or sad, it's just, it's not discussed. It's shoved under the table and then you pick up on that. And so when you're sad, when you're upset, you just say, no, I'm fine. I'm good. Like, no worries. Nothing's wrong. 
You know, that's, that's pretty much where it came from. So when my dad died, I didn't speak to it. I mean, even yeah. to this day, how oh, my dad died. Because I've never asked a question because I just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, like, so for, for me, like, so my my family, I think I told you, like, so my, my grandparents and my mom and my aunt were all born in England. And then I think it was just my uncles, their last kid that was born here in Canada. Um, but my my family doesn't ever like our our family gatherings are all just pleasantries it's it's just very pleasant very surface level and I love them all and they're all wonderful but like then I came in like a tornado of emotion and I, and I was just and I was a very sensitive kid and you know and I had a lot of stuff like with my dad happen and so everything was just very close to the surface and I remember being like why isn't anyone talking about what's happening right now and then I think I turned 15 and I was like I'm just gonna talk about it and start asking like really shitty offhand questions like hey how's your marriage doing (laughs) because I was just like let's talk about something other than the surface level and uh they didn't respond too well to that but is that your family northern as well we're from Lancashire um Burnley Lancashire and northern okay I I don't know (laughs) They're from it's England. Very, Northerners are very, they're like the tougher breed, if you like to think out the other people yeah. in England. Yeah. And I think like, you know, my, I know that my grandma in particular had a really, really tough upbringing, um, you know, and, and she had a lot of siblings and there just like wasn't space nor time to even process it. Cause they were just, you know, so poor that like all they could focus on was, you know, getting money for the next meal. And so like, so I get, again, I, I get completely where it comes from, but it's, it's funny now having conversations with my grandparents in particular, where like, I will be just very straightforward about my emotions because my, I have no qualms in talking about them. And like, that's how I speak to everyone. And I, re- I remember <clears throat> at the end of what year are we in? Oh my God. In 20, in 2020, um, I was engaged and I ended my engagement. Um, and so I was talking with my grandparents about it and yeah, I said, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm really upset about it. Like I'm not doing well. I'm, you know, I'm going through whatever. And, um, which is very, you know, I, I wasn't trying to hide any piece of it and be like, oh yeah, I'm fine. And they just didn't know how to <laughs> they did not know how to respond to it like my grandma in particular was just like no she just she was just like do you want tea I, I'm like yeah sure but you know like it was just so obvious that they wanted to get out of the conversation and and it, it sucks like it's really heartbreaking for me to see knowing what I know now because like I also know how much that avoidance can like really eat away at you later you know like I can see I'm not gonna I'm gonna state who it is but like I can see patterns in certain relationships and people where like you can tell that they're unhappy you can tell that there's a lot that isn't being said and I'm like who does that benefit in the end you know for for you to hold all that back and to not express it because you don't want to you know you don't want to stir the pot or you don't want to create conflict or whatever like it hurts you and the other person in the end because you're living in a in a relationship that you're not happy with. Yeah. 
don't know. That's my two cents about both. I think I, I suppose one of the things I've learned from my experiences now is to try and talk to my children a lot more. Yeah. My daughter's very, very hard though. She's my daughter's like me. She is so much like me. It's, it's scary. Um, and she just will not talk to me whatsoever. She talks yeah. to a mum. I kind of leave it there. But my son's like a bloody open book. He tells me everything. Yeah. Yeah, like I'll be like, oh, I better crap day down from all what's well, happened mate and like, I had an argument with Charlie I'm like right, right what's going on he'd be like it'd be something like, something like over but, I, but I love that though like that's it's so good where, when they feel safe to do that you know like I never like I, I never remember talking to my mom about stuff that was going on because it just didn't feel like there was space for it like it it means a lot to a kid to just be able to talk and be listened to yeah, so my, my daughter suffers with anxiety. She actually goes to see someone now. Um, and I actually got called in for, for that. And yeah. I thought it was going in to like, talk about how she was progressing and stuff like this. And it wasn't, it turned into like a shrink session to me for an hour. And I was like, oh, well, well, I wasn't expecting this. Yeah. But I just rolled with it. That wasn't so long ago, actually. Um, I think she was just trying to... <laughs> find out how fucked up I am so she can fucking stop I mean it, it is it's helpful it's helpful to have sessions with parents like it's part of why I don't work with teens or kids as much because it's it gets complicated bringing them in but yeah like it's it's important and helpful to kind of understand where the parents are coming from as well yeah yeah you do need to see it's it's pretty crappy when you look back at it and then you know you see how the things in your life and the mistakes that you've made affecting the children that you love and stuff like this. And then you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Just try well, and calm but then just roll with it after that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's a certain, like, so there's there's a, there's a thing about parenting in the field of, of psychology and mental health where, like, there's really just good enough parenting and, like, the problems or, like, the things that are more important aren't that we aren't that like we prevent all mistakes from being from happening you know it's not that we can prevent ourselves from ever like transferring any of our bullshit onto our kids but more that like when we notice that happen that we address those <laughs> moments you know we address when we fucked up we address when there was a, a rupture or a, an issue or whatever that separated that connection because that's ultimately like like what, trauma isn't really like the thing that happened. It's like the wound afterwards. And so going back in to address those ruptures is like cleaning up and putting a bandaid on the wound rather than just being like, ah, you're fine. <laughs> you know, rub some dirt in it. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, Paul, we've um, come to the end. So is there, <laughs> is there any, I guess like final thoughts or words or wisdom that you would like to impart on the listeners um, about, about your experience, about what you've you know noticed in, in your own self or anything that we've talked about today. Oh God. It's once again, it's another cliche. I'm going to whack you with another cliche. I love it. I love cliches. <laughs> I don't know what I feel a bit of a dick saying this, but yeah, because it is a massive cliche. Um, 
But for everything I've experienced in my life, no matter how shitty it gets, and it's always going to get shitty for people. Yeah. It's always, it's a never, you cannot live your whole life and fucking surf that wave of fucking fun and laughter. Yeah. Just know that as shitty as it gets, it will get better. It's just going to take a little bit of time and work. Yeah. I don't think just that's to- a cliche. I'm pretty sure it is. All right, maybe. I don't know. No, oh, like, well. I think it's it's a point worth restating. And it's it's hard to remember when you're in it, like in the thick of it. But yeah, yeah it, it will. will get easier and it will get better. Just remember yeah. that. Well, Paul, thank you for doing this. This is so, um, so, so lovely. Oh, and no uh, to all the listeners, thanks for tuning in and uh, I'll catch you guys on the next episode.